we have issues with PTSD, we have the homelessness, we have wounded warriors, there's a whole litany of issues, and I just focus in mainly on student veterans while they're transitioning mentally from the military back into the civilian world. This is First Person. Welcome to this week's program. I'm Wayne Shepard, and we're going to hear from a retired Air Force general and fighter pilot today who has served his country with distinction. You'll meet Major General Carl Schneider in just a moment. We're here each week at this time introducing you to people who love and serve the Lord in very unique ways. They and you are called by God to be salt and light in the world in which we live. And anytime you'd like additional information about a guest or topic you hear on First Person, visit us online at firstpersoninterview.com. And thank you for passing the word on to others who may be interested in hearing what you hear. Once again, that's firstpersoninterview.com. Well, coming up this week, we will observe Veterans Day. And as I thought about what we could do to honor those who have served in the military, I decided to pay a visit to retired Air Force Major General Carl Schneider at his home in Tennessee. General Schneider has quite a story and today is actively involved in bringing attention to the needs of today's vets. As we began, I asked him when he decided he wanted to fly airplanes. Well, I was uh, raised on a farm and I didn't like farm work and I hated hated chopping cotton. (laughs) And my uh, brother and I were out chopping cotton one day and this old bi-wing airplane came over and did some acrobatics. And I turned to my brother and I said, that's what I'm going to be. I'm going to be a pilot. Get out of this cotton patch. So he said, well, I will too. So he became a pilot also. Is that right? Okay. So that's that was my motivation to get out of And that was of, when? When I was nine years old. Okay. And uh, so we went on. I went through pilot training, and then uh, he went through a year or two later. And But you signed up. You, you, uh, you signed up in what, 1946, I think you right, told me? Right, right. Uh, which was towards the end of the war. The Yeah, the end of the fighting war. But as we discussed, the... Uh, Real end of the official war was uh, uh, December of 46, a year and a half after the signing of the peace treaty in Japan in Tokyo Bay. It took that long to wind things get down. Get everything sorted out, demobilize all the troops and get people home and okay. send the prisoners back and so forth. So you actually started your career in the military before that official end of World War II. Yeah, that's that's technically I could say I served in four wars, the World War II, all the Cold War. See, I was setting on targets in Europe during the Cold War. People, very few people realized we had fighter planes with nuclear weapons on them. Mm. Had the Russian War started in the 50s, 40s and 50s and 60s and 70s, we would have had uh, uh, all, of, all the B-52s and bombers got publicity, but we had fighters yeah. that were that served during the Cold War. So, you would have been on the front lines of that. That's right, yeah. yeah. You had yeah. targets in, in uh, Russia and in that area that we'd have executed if the war started. And then, of course, Vietnam. Yeah, then went to Vietnam and set up the Air Liaison Forward Air Controller Program over there. And one of my notable lieutenants ended up being on Fox News a lot, Tom McInerney. Oh, yeah, have- sure. So you, uh, you enlisted uh, in the Air Force. Right. Uh, you didn't get to pilot school right away, though. No, I went into went through basic and then through tech school, and then flew on B twenty nines and worked on the on the armament, all the armament. A uh, real quick story on that: I was an armor there, and the wing commander uh, used to fly, and I'd fly as a gunner, and and I finally got orders to go to pilot training. Went through pilot training, was flying jet fighters, 
And the squadron commander came in and said, I need one volunteer to go back to this B-29 unit and be, fly as a co-pilot to ferry airplanes to the boneyard in Tucson, the, the, the storage facility. Mm-hmm. Anybody want to go? And I yes, sir. <laughs> so I got out there on Friday and found one of my old sergeant buddies, sat in the cockpit all weekend and uh, studied the co-pilot duties for B-29. I'd never flown as a, boat, a co-pilot. Monday morning, the wing commander came in and and he saw my name tag and he said, Snyder, are you going to be my co-pilot? And I said, yes, sir. And he said, you got the flight plan ready? Yes, sir. Let's go. So we're getting the airplane and he was calling off the checklist and I was moving all the switches the right way and doing everything. We got up to altitude and he said, I think I'll go back in the back of the airplane and just see what's going on. And in the B-29, you had a long tube that you got on a little trolley and you went back over the bomb bay, way back to the back of the airplane. So you're out of communicate. Well, you're out of uh, touch with the yeah. cockpit. It's a long ways back. So there, here yeah. I'm setting up there, flying the airplane, and, <laughs> and got it all leveled off with the with the crew chief or the flight engineer. And he came back and he said, "By the way," he said, "I haven't seen you around much lately. Where have you been?" I said, "Well, I've been to pilot training." He said, "Haven't you been one of my pilots?" And I said, "No, sir. I was one of your one of your gunners." And I thought he's going to have a heart attack. <laughs> he went on to be the vice chief of the Air Force and the four star. He used to tell that story. Yeah, and a forgiving man. Hopefully, oh yeah, right? he's a great guy. General Blanchard was a really fine guy. Wonderful. You became a fighter pilot then. Tell me, tell me that what led up to that. Well, I wanted to be a fighter pilot, and I flew uh, P-51s in pilot training. We were an experimental class after World War II. They had uh, closed pilot training when I first went in, which I wanted to get into. And that's why I ended up going through basic training in tech school. So we were the first class of cadets to be trained after World War II. And they knew we were going to be going into jet fighters, so they started us off in the T-6, which was a 650-horsepower engine which was uh, the really the advanced trainer in world war ii so we started in that and then we flew the p-51 in advanced training and uh really a squirrely airplane to fly <laughs> tail, a tw- tailwind airplane for a young kid to be flying huh. but i got 80 hours in that and then okay went into one of the very first jet fighter squadrons. so now um you started combat in Korea, right? Yeah. Uh, how many missions? Well, I flew a hundred missions in Korea. We were on Okinawa when the war started, and then we moved up to uh, southern Japan, and we flew missions out of there during the Pusan perimeter. Hmm. Well, you know, we almost lost the war there. The North Koreans came roaring down, and they just surrounded Taegu, the Han River, and I guess the Naktong. I've forgotten the name exactly. But then we'd we'd fly out of Japan. We'd hit the target. Uh, all around the Pusan perimeter. And then we did have one field, uh, Taegu. We'd go in and land there and refuel, rearm, fly another mission, come back in, refuel, rearm, hit a third mission, then go back in Japan because they didn't even have enough parking space there at Taegu. So we hmm. just staged out of there during the day. Is that right? And then after the Inchon invasion, we moved to Kempo and then flew out of there until the Chinese came in and then we back to Japan again and that was tough duty, though, wasn't yeah, it? Tough duty. One, coldest winter they'd had in, in 100 years, I guess, in Korea. Hmm. And we were living in these old tents with a pot-bellied stove in the middle. And if you stood up close to it, you'd burn a, burn up and your back would freeze and slept on old GI cots with every bit of clothes you had on. Yeah. And the heaters didn't work half the time in the airplanes, right? So you're cold and you're getting shot at and you're cold at night. So mm. 
That's why I moved to Arizona when I retired. I said, I want to <laughs> yeah, go to the hottest like place. Stay I warm can. where I can, right. Uh, the casualty rate was very high. Very high, yeah. We lost 22 out of 32 guys that started together. And one thing we did when we left Okinawa, we, we promised each other that we'd visit the guys' families that didn't make it back. So I traveled around the country and traveled all, and visited the families. Mm. And this one family down in Florida just really adopted me in their son's place. And I call them my second family. Huh. And that was the niece and the minister that was here with us last week. Okay. Uh, that uh, I became their second, their, my second family. So. Yeah. And you have a real heart today to help vets. We'll, we'll talk about that in a few minutes. But So you started flying combat missions in Korea. Right. Any of those missions that stick out uh, as most memorable for you? Well, the one, the one that the most dramatic one was when we were taking off on a mission, and and we had a we called him Bed Check Charlie. He'd come over a little bi wing airplane, uh, Russian AN two airplane, drop one bomb on the runway, and would have to go out and repair it because if you took off and your wheel hit in that huh. thing, yeah. So he was just pestering you with a, yeah, a single just, bomb. Yeah, he was just harassing everybody, and. So we all took off, three of us took off on the left side, and the number four man ran into the truck and and uh, uh, was killed, of course, and burned up. And mm. everybody thought it was me because we'd switched airplanes right at the last minute. Oh, okay. And then one of the airmen in the operations was super superstitious. He always saw ghosts everywhere. And, of course, everybody thought that was me because we'd swapped airplanes <laughs> on takeoff and I walked back in operations after I came back from the mission, and he took off, and we, one of the guys found him two days later down in the village. <laughs> he, he thought you were a ghost I thought because was, you, he, he, he saw the crash, thought you had died. Yeah. You went off for a couple hours on a mission yeah. and walked back in a couple hours later, and yeah. he sees you as a ghost. <laughs> okay, that's, yeah. a, that's a great story. That was a, a, a bit of humor against a very tragic yeah. situation. Yeah, but you also uh, flew, as you said, in the Cold War after uh, Korea, Went, and, and then Vietnam. Well, I went to went to Germany, and we flew. We had nuclear weapons, which we were would have delivered had the Russian had the Cold War turned into a shooting war. So we had fighters on alert, and you set twenty four seven on alert hmm. in Europe for years in Europe and in Asia. Mm-hmm. Very few people really knew that fighters. They, Strategic Air Command got all the publicity. Hmm. With B fifty twos and B twenty nines and so forth, but so the, there wasn't actual combat, but it was still very tense. Well, we flew every day, but we had to have airplanes on the run uh, on alert, and then we'd also fly air to air, intercepting any Russian airplanes that would come. I see close to our border. Okay, any close calls in Vietnam for you? Oh yeah, yeah, I had a lot of them, and uh, you got shut up on practically every mission. Uh, hmm. I flew 12 missions getting, helping get the Marines out of the Wachon Reservoir. And uh, I've got an old buddy that's still living in Arizona. He's about 94 now. He said, we wouldn't have gotten out of there if you guys hadn't helped us. You know, mm-hmm. the Air Force did a lot of missions there, and uh, Marines were trapped. They had a big crevasse, and we had to, we got a, B, a C-119 and dropped the Bailey Bridges and put and the engineers put that across, and that's the only way all those Marines got out and got back into, uh, hmm. and got out of the Watchon Reservoir. So hmm. he he's he said we would he wouldn't have survived if if we hadn't done it because they they couldn't get their planes going there. And uh, but anyway, that was a lot of missions that you got shot up out on every every mission. And you say that so casually, and yet that was a life or death situation, yeah, that's wasn't right. it? Yeah, you 
is a do or die. He mm-hmm. just did it. Mm-hmm. That's your job. Coming up in the second half of our conversation, we'll talk about issues facing today's veterans. Stay tuned. Our partner in bringing you these conversations each week is the Far East Broadcasting Company. For 70 years, FEBC has been faithfully proclaiming the gospel in local languages to scores of countries throughout Asia and beyond. Last year, over 2 million listeners responded to FEBC programs, an incredible number to comprehend. So to learn more about this effective means of reaching people for Christ and how you can help, just visit FirstPersonInterview.com and click on the FEBC banner. My guest today is Major General Carl Schneider, retired U.S. Air Force. We are meeting in his home in Tennessee to talk about his career. And in a few minutes, Carl, I want to talk about your heart to help vets today. I know this is something you're spending a lot of your time doing. You could be doing a lot of different things, but this is something you're really dedicating your life to. So thank you for that. And thank you for your service to our country as well. Well, I appreciate that. You know, I'm not a hero. I've served with a lot of heroes and guys that have done a lot of things. But you just, and when you're in the business, when you, you just do your job and you really are fighting for your buddy next to you, you know, a lot of, a lot of flag waving and a lot of other things, but whether you're on the ground or in the air, you're really just supporting each other. That's what it gets down to very basic uh, things. And you don't want to let him get shot down and you want to protect him. And if he's behind protecting you, well, it's yeah. his job and, yeah. and it's just a pretty basic deal. Well, so you were in active service on the wind down of World War II. You flew fighter jets in Korea and and the Cold War in Vietnam. Right. I know we're going to have to skip a lot here, Carl, but just give me a summary of what happened after uh, after Vietnam. And you you became a, an instructor and a commander. Uh, tell me that part well, of the story. Well, I, I got got to be a, a squadron commander pretty fast. I had a I flew F one hundreds in Europe for three years and came back to the University of Texas. Studied industrial management, and then back to Luke again as a squadron commander, then to Vietnam, then back to uh, Arizona State, finished a degree I was working on, then back to Luke as a commander, and uh, then to uh, Marine Corps for a year on exchange duty, and then uh, to um, Pentagon, and, and then a wing commander and training. You served new in, pilots. The, in the Pentagon. Two years in the Pentagon, which was two years long enough. At, uh, <laughs> uh, so you were very actively involved in a command level of helping train pilots through the years. Well, yeah, sure, yeah, I trained a lot of the, a lot of the pilots that uh, went on to do very good. And as I mentioned, uh, one of my my real good guys was my the first lieutenant I had in Korea. I mean, in Vietnam as a forward air controller was Tom McInerney. Mm-hmm. Who's, now on Fox News a lot, the mm-hmm. lieutenant general. And in your office, I saw the photo, and there's several wonderful historic photos there, but a couple of them, there's one with you, and George Bush is in the, in the yeah, photo. Yeah, George was one of our second lieutenants, a really good pilot. He did a great job, graduated in top part of his class, and his mom and dad came down twice while he's there, and then his dad was a guest speaker when he graduated. So I got to have dinner with his parents, and uh, – his mother is the funniest lady I think I've ever known. Everything Barbara <laughs> said was still funny. Is, yeah. Yes, a yeah. wonderful lady. And then uh, when he was in the uh, second term of the president, uh, we, he was invited some of us to come up and have dinner with him. And we we uh, in the family quarters, and I was sitting right next to George, and, and I was telling him how he should be running the country. <laughs> and uh, 
that night, we all started acting silly, and one of the colonels said, now, Lieutenant Bush, I want to give you some advice here. <laughs> and uh, we went down to the Oval Office and acted silly for an hour. And we're leaving that light that night. Lars said, that's the most fun he's had since he's been in the White House. Yeah, so, needed that stress relief, probably. Yeah, he really enjoyed right, it. And, right, Buzz Aldrin was another. Yeah, Buzz was uh, a guy that I helped get into the astronaut program. Did a much small part. Tell, so, tell me that story, though. Tell our listeners that story of... Well, we were down in Africa, and uh, we liked to scuba dive. So we on the weekends, we'd rent an old car there in Tripoli, and the mess sergeant would cook up some food for us, and we'd we'd go up the coast and sleep out at night and scuba dive during the day. And we're lying out on the beach one night and looking up, and Sputnik flew over. And I told Buzz that I said, you know, you ought to be one of those guys someday that we put out in space. And uh, you, ought, you ought to get your degree in astronautics, and someday when we pick people, you'll be able to go out in space. So long story short, he landed on the moon. So. And I've stayed in touch with him. In fact, I had dinner with him just before I came out here. Uh, he's really working on the return to Mars now. That's mm. his big push. And okay. He's working with Richard Branson and a lot of these other folks, too. Uh, one of his other ideas is to have a lottery where you could buy a ticket maybe for $1,000. And then whoever wins the lottery would get to go into space, not around the world, but just up into outer. into. Uh, okay. In, Answer honestly. Would you do it? Uh, not now. I would, <laughs> I would have done it 40 years ago. Yeah. I was going to say, I bet you still have that sense of adventure in your yeah, heart. Though, I, don't you? I might, if I, if I won the lottery. <laughs> well, Carl, again, thanks for your service to our country, but it hasn't stopped because you really, um, want to see vets have their needs met. Don't you? This is something that's very important and something that many ways we've dropped the ball, haven't we? Well, we have, and what we need, I'm just focusing on student veterans. You know, you can't do everything for everybody. We have issues with PTSD. We have homelessness. We have domestic issues. Uh, we have wounded warriors. There's a whole litany of issues, and I just focus in mainly on student veterans trying to get a, a veteran center at every school where we have uh, veterans going so they can get their classes, their benefits, and then have a an area to work together while they're transitioning mentally from the military back into the civilian world. What's the biggest challenge for them? Well, the the biggest uh, problem are the younger enlisted guys that come right out of high school, go in the service, go to over maybe two or three combat tours, and come back, and now they're out in the big world, and they a lot of them are sort of lost. Unless mm-hmm. they're, uh, well, even if they're married, then they've got some domestic issues sometimes. Mama's been running the show, or dad's been running the show, and they come back in, there's problems there, and uh, and they've never worked in a civilian company. So one of the things we've done is we've, we've got a program we call uh, How Organizations Work and Don't Work. And all of us have had our own businesses. I got uh, started businesses after I got out of the Air Force, and the other guys all had military service and their own business. So we just try to orient them on the difference in the culture and how to, how to react and how to uh, uh, develop your resume and and use all of the great skills that you've learned in the military that apply to the civilian world. That you know, we've got the greatest bunch of young people now we've ever had in this country. Hmm. Only point four five percent of the American population has served in the military since world since nine eleven, hmm. and they're all volunteers. Hmm. And so there's a big gap between yeah. the understanding of the average civilian 
you know, we say the troops used to say we're in combat and, and all, everybody in America is going to the shopping mall. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of true. Mm-hmm. Many folks have no clue about what you go through in a combat situation. So that's an issue I'm trying to bring the chambers of commerce in around each one of the schools so they understand, meet the veterans and understand them. And the veterans get to talk to the business people and academic people. What do you expect when we get out of school? So, yeah. uh, when you were uh, actively flying combat missions, was there such a thing as PTSD in those days? I don't. Uh, it wasn't I, labeled, was it? No, they didn't. You wouldn't dare even admit it because at that time uh, you were. There was a stigma, and uh, most of them didn't trust a psychiatrist in the military anyway. And as a pilot, they'd have grounded you. If you'd have even indicated that you had any mental problems, okay, you'd have been, you know, you're. So just, it was seen as a sign of weakness. Yeah, to yeah, ta- even talk about it. Absolutely, you just didn't talk about it. You just worked it out. And I had some issues because I uh, I'd lost all my good friends, and and uh, I was had some problems getting along with people. And finally, my boss said, "Get out of here and don't come back till you get your head straightened out." And so I took off up to the mountains and, and spent a couple of weeks hating the world and, and came back. And I said, I came off the mountain. I just readjusted myself and started acting normal. But I had a good childhood and a good solid foundation. And a lot of these kids don't yeah, have that the now. Same they come today, from broken homes. Mm-hmm. They have domestic issues, uh, single parents. Uh, I had great parents and, uh, and a really solid foundation. But I didn't see the... Uh, the trauma it, or it didn't get the publicity that it does now, but a, a lot of guys did have problems in Korea that just never got surfaced. I'm sure they just dealt with it as best they could. We're coming up on veterans day, Carl. What's one thing that we can do to get involved in helping vets today? Well, we've got things like operation stand down right here in Nashville. I just sent out an email to everybody in town they counsel veterans on all all these issues. And that's true all over the country. There are similar organizations, similar right? Pro- somewhat similar programs in all the countries or all the states. And and then just uh, just look around and see where you can help. Uh, I'm trying to work out a, a mentor program. So in schools, have the veteran alums adopt another veteran that's going to school. You know, you've been the veteran's been through it himself or herself. And uh, just be a mentor to some of the younger vets to help them sort of make that mental transition and assure them that you can still get out and be very successful and, and do a good job. So a combination of the Veterans Center and mentorship is, is one of the focuses we've got going now. Major General Carl Schneider, U.S. Air Force retired, our guest today on First Person. Just as we were talking about a moment ago, General Schneider has a deep desire to help today's veterans cope with life after their service to our country. He's recommended one organization in particular, C4Vets, and we'll put a link to their helpful website on our webpage, firstpersoninterview.com. C4Vets helps veterans with education and employment issues. The interviews you hear on this program are made possible by our friends at the Far East Broadcasting Company. For more about FEBC and its gospel radio ministry in nearly 50 countries of the world, please go to firstpersoninterview.com and click on the banner for FEBC. This program is also available as a downloadable podcast through iTunes or by using our mobile app for smartphones and tablets. Next week, our guest, J.J. Jasper, tells his family story of the accidental death of their son. We'll talk about grief and healing next time. Now, with thanks to my friend and producer, Joe Carlson, I'm Wayne Shepard. Thanks for listening to First Person. First Person.